While I was studying this week, I came across this quote, and I usually try and have some kind of quote or story or joke or something to start with, but this one really kind of captured my attention, and I just couldn't stop thinking about it this week, and so I wanted to share that to start. Uh, it's this quote from this, uh, this guy named Samuel Chadwick, and he said that the one concern of the devil is to keep Christians from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, and prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil. He mocks our wisdom, but he trembles when we pray. And that kind of stuck with me this week. Um, this is our final week in James. We've been studying this uh, letter for 11 weeks now, and we have covered a lot of material uh, a, a ton of applicable lessons for our lives and, and our souls. We've talked about perseverance in the face of opposition. We've talked about being a doer of the word and not just someone who hears and forgets. We've talked about judging others and that it's not our job to take judgment into our own hands. We've talked about the importance of our words now, they can be extremely destructive, or they can build others up. That a few evil words can corrupt an entire person. We've talked about the difference between earthly wisdom and spiritual heavenly wisdom. We've talked about what it means to be faithful to God. And that when we put anything above God in our hearts, we are in essence cheating on Him. We've talked about seeking God's will in our lives. Not just in the big, obvious areas and the big decisions, but in every part of our lives, the little things. Shaping our entire being around seeking his will for us. We've talked about how destructive greed can be in our lives. And that when we use what we've been blessed with to hurt or oppress others, whether intentionally or unintentionally by supporting oppressive systems, God hears the cries of the oppressed. Last week, we came into the concluding remarks of James. So after all that we've studied, all that they were going through, we came into these final pieces of advice to the church and to the Christians. In the face of all that they were experiencing, including oppression and injustice at the hands of the rich, the recipients of this letter were told to be patient. God had heard their cries, and he is coming soon. And this week, as we finish this letter of James, we, we come to these uh, concluding remarks and instructions uh, as he continues to tell them what he wants them to do based on everything that we've talked about so far as they move forward. And so that's what we're going to look at today as we wrap up this letter, is these concluding remarks uh, and so our final passage is going to start at verse 13 to 20. I don't have slides this week. Uh, I knew Dale wasn't here, and I realized last night, and I didn't want to just throw slides at you when um, you're trying to figure out the slides for the, the music. So I, I uh, decided not to do it this week. Um, so I'll read this out, and uh, I guess you'll uh, be able to follow along in your Bibles or just uh, listen as I read it. So he says, Are any of you suffering hardships? you should pray. Are any of you happy? You should sing praises. Are any of you sick? You should call for the elders of the church to come and pray over you, 
anointing you with oil in the name of the Lord. Such a prayer offered in faith will heal the sick, and the Lord will make you well. And if you've committed any sins, you will be forgiven. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other, so that you may be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. Elijah was just as human as we are, and yet when he prayed earnestly that no rain would fall, no rain fell for three and a half years. Then when he prayed again, the sky sent down rain, and the earth began to yield its crops. My dear brothers and sisters, if someone among you wanders away from the truth and is brought back, you can be sure that whoever brings the sinner back from the wandering will save that person from death and bring about the forgiveness of many sins. So that's our passage. Uh, And as we wrap up this letter, James, like many other New Testament authors, begins with this, or concludes with this encouragement to pray. Last week, we saw him calling for his readers not to seek revenge or resist the oppression they were facing. But that doesn't mean that they had to pretend that they weren't happening or that the hardships they were facing didn't matter. It meant that they were supposed to not sit around miserably until Jesus came back. There was something they could do. He says, are any of you suffering hardships? You should pray. The person who is suffering misfortune should pray. And the word hardships in this verse is not talking about sickness or health. At this point in the verse, it's specifically talking about physical circumstances or personal situations that were causing someone distress. Whatever might be causing you misfortune or hardship, anything, the first thing you should do is pray. By contrast, James then asks, is anyone happy? And says the proper response is to sing songs of praise. But the sense behind that verse is specifically praising God. Um, And that can be through song. Uh, That's generally how we praise God. But it can be in prayer as well. The intent is that we should be thanking God with a joyful spirit and heart when we're happy. What's really meant here is that, first of all, there is never, in any circumstances, a season of life in which prayer should not be our first response to God. Whether we are joyful and happy, or having a hard time, God should be the first person we turn to. Then there's this third circumstance that James calls for prayer. This is an interesting one. He says, are any of you sick? You should call for the elders of the church to come and pray over you, anointing you with oil in the name of the Lord. This is interesting because James doesn't command the sick person to pray. He asks for them to bring the elders of the church to pray for them, which is interesting. It doesn't mean they shouldn't pray, but we have this kind of different formula here that he gives. Now this passage, um, it talks about a couple things. Prayer is really the most significant one mentioned. Prayer is the main verb. This anointing with oil is a participle, which means it's a secondary action. Now, this is interesting because uh, anointing with oil, it's not something that uh, really happens a lot in the Church of Christ Christian churches. Uh, It's not something we're very familiar with. Uh, Some denominations do anointing with oil for various things. So I wanted to talk about it for a minute just to make sure we're all familiar with what it is. It's not something we do much anymore. 
And there's a lot of people who are much smarter than I am who have studied this topic extensively. Uh, and so I read a lot of what they had to say uh, from the various different uh, backgrounds and opinions. And so here's kind of the main ideas as to what this meant, um, what people think it meant. There's a couple different camps. So the first camp, uh, the first camp of scholars, what they think that anointing with oil was, they thought it was completely medicinal, this one camp over here. There's a couple reasons why they thought that was the case. Uh, first, the Greek word used in this passage is not the usual Greek word for a sacramental anointing. James uses a different word. Uh, and so you, you kind of have to understand as well, anointing originally in the Old Testament, it was a way to set things apart. Uh, so you'd set apart the, uh, the things in the tabernacle for worship, uh, the altar, they would anoint everything with oil in the Old Testament. So this is a different word though. This Greek word here, uh, it, it's different than the one that was normally used for this sacramental anointing in the Old Testament. And it, it, it's kind of one that's still used in modern day Greek. And it means to dab or smear, which is kind of interesting. Now the other word that's usually used for sacramental anointing still means to anoint in modern day Greek. Uh, now, the people in that camp who think it was medicinal, they tend to also believe that oil was a common medicine during biblical times. And because of that, they conclude that James is prescribing both prayer and medicine. So that's kind of the first group of people what they think about sacramental anointing, or about anointing in this passage. The second camp thinks that this was sacramental, that it was a religious um, sacrament. There isn't really a lot of evidence, this, this camp says there isn't really a lot of evidence that anointing with oil was used for any medicinal problems. Uh, but if it were just medicinal, why would it have to be the elders of the church to do it? That doesn't make any sense. Most likely someone, a doctor or something, would have already come and done this if it was a medicinal thing. So it's more likely that this anointing has a sort of religious purpose in the first century church. And this does come to today. A lot of churches still anoint with oil regularly. Uh, I think it's the Catholic Church anoints uh, before baptism. Uh, and it's kind of that same idea of sitting apart. So you'll often see that happen. Now, it's a little tricky for me studying this because anointing with oil, again, it's not something we really do in our churches often or talk about and so I kind of have to explain all the background uh, because it's not something we really do. But my kind of takeaway as I was studying with this was that it seems to be, there's a religious aspect to it, but it seems to be a way to symbolically set a person apart for God's special attention and care as we pray for them. Now this is the only uh, place in the New Testament where we have a specific instruction to do this. It's the only place. There were a lot of other healings that took place without this happening. So I think it would be hard for us to say this is something we have to do. Um, that we have to do this as the church um, because there's a lot of places where it doesn't happen. So I think based on all this, for me, it seems that it's safe to assume it's something that we may choose to do when we're praying for the sick. And James certainly here recommends us to do so. So it's kind of interesting. That's just a little bit of the background here. 
so that you know a little more about what this is. But I want to make sure that we remember that prayer is James' main concern here. He says in verse 15, Such a prayer offered in faith will heal the sick. When the elders come around a person who's sick and pray for them, the Lord will make you well. And if you have committed any sins, you will be forgiven. So this really reflects um, the heart of this whole passage, which is prayer. Uh, James says that it's the prayer, this type of prayer, that brings about healing in the sick person. But in either case, it's not some magical thing. And that's something to remember when we study this as well. This isn't a magical formula James is giving us. This is petitioning God to make the sick person well. The anointing with oil is symbolically setting them apart for God's special care and attention. All of it is about petitioning God. But the faithful prayer of gathered believers has effectiveness. James says that such a prayer will heal the person. The literal translation of this is that the Lord will raise you up. And that's fascinating because the Greek word there can be used both for physically getting up, for physically being better, but also for raising someone from the dead, the resurrection. Now he also says that if you've committed any sins, you will be forgiven. And I want to talk about that for a minute because that's kind of a fascinating connection to make when you look at a passage about sin um, and sickness in the same verse. Um, by saying that, with what we'll see in the next verse, it suggests the possibility, just the possibility, that the person could be sick because of sin in their life. And that's something we don't really think or talk about because that sounds very uncomfortable. But there's definitely an implication throughout Scripture that we can be sick because of sin. But it's conditional, which means that's not always why someone's sick. And, and some denominations will use this verse to say, um, if you're sick, it's because of sin in your life. Uh, and that's dangerous as well. So we have to be careful of that. But it is mentioned. So we kind of have to think about that as well when we're praying for people. It's a very tricky passage to end the, the letter with. <laughs> There's all these things you can interpret four or five different ways. <laughs> I, I kind of said when we first started that James would throw in these little tidbits that would send me off on these goose chases. And so it's only fair that he ends the letter with four or five of them for me. <laughs> so I want us to remember... Sickness is not always the result of sin. And I would, in fact, say probably most of the time it's not. Um, and I think that's really important to remember, but it's also important to remember it can be. That's what he's saying here. And because of that, he moves into this next verse. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. So in Greek, there's a connective therefore at the first of this verse, which means because sin can cause sickness, confess your sins to each other. 
Because healing is connected with prayer and the forgiveness of sin, confess your sins to one another and pray for each other. This is not something that we like at all as the church today. There's a lot of things we read in scripture that we're like, we don't really do that. Well, we definitely don't have a public retelling of sin in our churches today. And I feel like if I suggested, hey, we should have an open mic night for everyone to come up and confess their sins, probably everyone would leave. (laughs) And I probably would too. (laughs) I don't think he's saying that we should have an open mic night to confess our sin. But there is something about mutual confession that leads to prayer. I think there's a difference between taking turns at the microphone in front of the church and trusting in a person whom you've known and share your heart with on a regular basis. Someone who you have chosen to hold you accountable. And someone who you hold accountable. But what is important is that this isn't something that's suggested, it's something that was expected in the church. And it's not something that we really do. I don't think an open mic night, again, is the right answer, but the idea that we should all be accountable to someone is important. This idea of mutual intercession, not just confessing sin, but praying for each other and the struggles we're going through, is a prime example of the New Testament concept of the priesthood of all believers. Verses 17 to 18 gives us a prime example of the power of prayer. Elijah was just as human as we are, and yet when he prayed earnestly that no rain would fall, none fell for three and a half years. Then when he prayed again, the sky sent down rain, and the earth began to yield its crops. So Elijah was a really important character to the Jewish community. Everyone knew who he was. And this letter was primarily written to a Hebrew audience. He was known and celebrated for his powerful miracles and his prophetic denunciation of sin. But most of all, he was looked at as a helper in time of need whose coming would pave the way for the messianic age. So this example of Elijah illustrates everything about James' plea, not just here, but throughout this whole letter, for a faith that rejected worldly standards of judgment in favor of divine standards. We are not the masters of our own faith. And faith cannot be mixed with the illusions of our own autonomy from God. We have to build our trust in the word of God and do what it says. And this example of Elijah encourages us to pray, but it also gives us a tangible example of how much God answers prayer when we put our faith and trust in him instead of ourselves. And then we come to these last two verses. And as I was studying, the first thing that came to mind when I read these was, what a gift from James to me as a preacher, that these last two verses have absolutely nothing to do with all the other verses about prayer. But I can't leave them out or else we technically didn't finish James. And that would really irritate me. So, here they are. My dear brothers and sisters, if someone among you wanders away from the truth and is brought back, you can be sure that whoever brings the sinner back from the wandering will save that person from death and bring about the forgiveness of many sins. 
So on one hand, this flows out of the themes of forgiveness and confession that we're seeing today in our passage. But on the other hand, as the last words he writes in this letter, it really gives what must have been part of his purpose in writing it, to turn or save people from error. Genuine faith brings full forgiveness of sin. True saving faith, faith that uh, encourages us or creates action out of our lives. And once we are forgiven of our sins, they are never to be held against us again. So as hard as it is to win someone back to faith, the eternal rewards for them made it infinitely worth our time. If we take James to be writing this letter as a sermon, because uh, it kind of almost reads that way, then these last two verses are a very appropriate call to action. All right, so we're finishing up this letter. Uh, we've finished studying it. So let's uh, consider all the things that we've looked at over the last few months. Everything that we've studied, everything that we've talked about, and the words we've studied today there are a few things I would really like us to remember from all of it. These closing remarks were what James wanted his readers to remember the most. And so for us, we should also take these words seriously as we finish this letter and as we move on to the next. So I'll keep this brief and to the point because I want it to stick in our minds, but this, you get the sense that this is what is most on James' heart, what's most important to him. The first is that we are to pray with earnest. You get a sense of earnest that it's it's a uh, there's a sense of urgency or a, a sense of dedication. Uh, it's not just this passive thing. It's uh, everything that we do and everything uh, we are. We're praying fervently <laughs> about all that goes on, whether it's good things in our lives, bad things in our lives, things in other people's lives. Um, there's a sense that it's. Uh, it's more than just something we're, we're repeating or saying because we feel like it's, it's what we do uh, before a meal or, or before bed. Um, there's this sense of, uh, I'm praying fervently because I believe that it will result in something happening. We're called to pray with earnest. And especially when people are sick, we should be gathered around them and praying for their healing. Second, based on everything we've studied, we are called to confess our sins. And we always, whenever we hear confess our sins, we always think to God. And I don't think that that's wrong. I think we should do that. But that's not what James means here. He means we should be confessing our sins to each other. And again, I don't think this means that we all get up in front of this microphone and confess all our sins at an open mic night, but, and I also don't think this means everyone confesses their sins to me, like uh, in the Catholic Church. I'm just as much of a sinner as everyone else here. <laughs> um, I'm not some kind of special person who has a special avenue to God. But I think it's important for us all to be accountable to someone, that one person who you trust and know has your best interests at heart. It's when we hide our sins in the dark when we are in danger, not when we bring them into the light. The third thing, and this was his final comments, we are called to a ministry 
of restoration. And that's an interesting one. Um, I don't think this means that if someone goes to a different church, they need to be brought back here or anything like that, uh, because we're all on the same team. This is specifically when people stray from the truth or walk away from their faith or even are just slowly drifting away. We're not just supposed to watch them as they drift away from God. And we can't force anyone to do anything, and we shouldn't, because that'd be bad. But we should be connected enough with people and concerned enough for each other to be checking in with one another and helping each other when there's a need. But I also do think that reconciliation goes hand in hand with restoration and confession of sin. Because the church is a family. And families fight. <laughs> it's a thing that happens. And that's okay, because that's just the part of being a family. It happens. But when we've hurt someone or been cruel or unkind, or if we've been hurt or been, someone's been cruel to us, it's our job to make it right. Just like our parents make us go and apologize to our siblings when you throw something at them. It's our job to make it right and to acknowledge our part. And when someone does something wrong to us, it's our responsibility to forgive them, which is not an easy thing. That doesn't mean that everything goes back to how it was before, or that the hurt just disappears. But it should always be our mission to clear bad air so we can get back to loving one another. Because we are called to a ministry of restoration and reconciliation. So as we conclude this series in James, all these hard topics we've covered through this fall, and now we look forward to a new season uh, of joy and excitement and uh, twinkly lights and remembering our Savior who came to die for us. As we look to a new year, I hope that these messages will stick with us and be an encouragement to us. Remember, as I've said from the very first week, it's not about running a perfect race. We literally can't do that. But it's about running anyways, despite knowing that we won't be perfect. It's about getting up and running again when you fall, because no matter how far you fall or however many times you fall, you're still allowed to run. In James 1.12, the very first week, I pointed out this verse and said it was kind of the theme of the whole letter. James says, Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. So persevere. Whatever trials are thrown at you, run the race, pray without ceasing, confess your sins along the way, and remember that you're not perfect, but neither is anyone else. When people stray from the truth or drift away, go after them and show them the love of Jesus through your words and deeds. As we leave here today, it's my hope and my prayer for all of us that we will persevere, that we will stand the test, and that we will all love Jesus with all of our hearts, our words, and our actions until the very end. Father God, I thank you so much for your son and the sacrifice that he made for us. And I thank you for your word that it can teach us new things, however long we've been reading it. I just ask that 
your spirit that you've put in us would move in us to apply your word, that it would fill us with your love, that it would give us a pressing need to reach a world that's hurting for you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.